excuse me, you may be seated. Uh, I want to take a minute here, I mentioned this last week, with Veterans Day being on a Friday instead of a Monday, kind of makes it a little bit, I'm, I'm not sure what Sunday that means, we're supposed to recognize our veterans. But I just want to take a minute here at Byfield Parish, especially on the tail end of an election week, to recognize that we as a church community, we as a nation, are able to worship freely, we're able to vote, we're able to do these different things uh, because of the sacrifices of those that served. So if you served in any of our armed forces, if you would just stand for us for one second so we could uh, recognize those sacrifices. about recognizing Veterans Day is inevitably, uh, whenever we ask veterans to stay, stand up, somebody stands up and I think, really? Really? I didn't know that. I didn't know that about that person. So um, that was definitely the case today as well. Uh, here in Byfield, we are returning to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is where we've been the past couple of weeks. In our text today, Paul continues to make an argument that we have been looking at the previous two weeks. We are going to jump straight back into that argument, which is focused on the actions of those in the church at Corinth and how those actions put the people at risk of judgment. These verses hammer home the warnings of the past couple of weeks. Uh, somebody said to me this past week that they were like, you know, that sermon last week, it was, it was a little bit of a hellfire and brimstone. You just said it with a smile, so they were a little bit confused. But it's true. Paul is really telling the Corinthians what's up, and he is telling us the same thing. So let's turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to start reading in verse 14. I'm sorry, uh, we're going to start reading in verse, yes, in verse 14 and read through verse 22. If you're using the Pew Bibles, that can be found on page 900. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14 is where we are beginning. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans, that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. 
Idolatry, sin in general, should not be taken too lightly. This was a mistake that the Corinthians were making. It is a mistake that is incredibly common in our culture as well. Many Christians would nod their heads in agreement that sin isn't taken seriously enough in our world. This is not just a problem out in the world, it is a problem here in the church. Paul wants to make it clear how serious a thing sin is. He wants to be clear why it should not be taken lightly. Sin is personally destructive. It disrespects the blood of Christ and it provokes the Lord. Sin should be taken seriously. Today's text kicks off with a straightforward command from Paul to the Corinthians. He says, flee from idolatry. But before the command to flee from idolatry, there is a therefore. The command to flee from idolatry is built on what was already established in the preceding verses. Last week, we looked at these verses which were focused on sin and temptation. God is faithful to Christians when we are tempted. He won't let us be tempted beyond our ability. He will provide a means of escape so that we can endure. The command to flee is a command to seize the opportunity for escape. Christians are to run away from sin. By getting away from sin, we are avoiding the judgment that sin inevitably brings. The word this passage uses to describe how we should behave in relation to sin seem a bit hysterical, slightly overwrought. A person only flees when they are completely powerless, when they can't stand and fight. I don't like the idea of fleeing from anything. I'm a red-blooded American man. These colors don't run, right? I want to stand and fight. My attitude is, even if I know I am going to lose, I want to stand my ground. I want to go down fighting. Multiple times a week, I play racquetball at Boston Sports Club, which now has another name for like the fourth time in three years up in Salisbury. And sometimes I play racquetball with people that I know are better than me. And, and when I go in, you see a racquetball court, it's a glass court, right? When I go in that court with that person, I'll look at them and I'll say to them, I know I'm going to lose. I know you're better than me. But I want to make this as miserable for you as possible, right? 
And if we play and then play to 15 and they end up beating me 15 to 12, I can walk out of there thinking like, that was really unpleasant for them. I take pride in making my opponents beat. In everyday life, standing and fighting, even when defeat seems inevitable, may be a good strategy. This is not the case when it comes to sin. Existing in sin's presence is a bad idea. Sin should not be underestimated. Before talking more about sin, I want to take a moment to clarify an important point. Paul doesn't say flee from sin. He says flee from idolatry. Many people would read that and think, well, I'm good to go then. I don't have any little statues in my house that I worship. Well, that is hopefully true. That doesn't mean that we don't all have idols that we are tempted to worship. An idol is anything we worship in place of God. It is whatever we turn to as a source of security, status, and comfort in our world. Our world is filled with idols. People idolize their children. They put them up on a pedestal and they worship them. And they say, this child will give my life meaning and purpose and value. People worship their spouses. People worship their nation. People idolize their churches and their social status. Pastor Tim Keller points out that an idol is usually a good thing. It is usually a good thing that we make ultimate. We say, unless I have that thing, I am nothing. Sin is what happens when we worship idols of our own creation. Sin is a re the rejection of God's good purposes that inevitably results from worshiping other things in place of God. Idolatry, sin, evil, and destruction are all interconnected. Sin is a life and death matter. We flee sin because if we don't, it will destroy us. Like the Corinthians, we don't take sin seriously enough. They thought their actions were no big deal. They underestimated sin and overestimated themselves. In addition, they misunderstood how the grace of Jesus Christ operates in relation to sin. Does any of this sound familiar? The imperative to flee is an attempt to get the Corinthians and us to understand the seriousness of sinful idolatry. Some of you might remember the 1958 movie, The Blob, starring Steve McQueen. Who remembers The Blob? Who's seen The Blob? Okay, we've got a few in here. I highly recommend, I highly recommend for any of you younger crowd out there, Go home on YouTube today. This is the only time you'll ever hear me say, go home and watch something on YouTube. And watch the movie preview for the blog. It, it is amazing. The premise 
of this movie is that some sort of alien goo falls to earth. It consumes everything it touches, growing bigger all the time. According to the preview for the movie, it crawls, it creeps, it eats you alive. At some point in the movie, it becomes clear there is no fighting the block. All you can do is run. This movie isn't a bad allegory for sin. Often my job is to stand up here to explain fairly complicated or mysterious theological concepts. This is not one of those times. Sin can take on a lot of forms, but its essential essence is pretty straightforward. What you need to know is that it is destructive. And you cannot resist sin indefinitely. You should flee from it whenever you can. If you don't, it will consume you. In addition to our own well-being, a Christian's participation in the body and blood of Christ compels us to avoid sin as well. A few weeks ago, we talked about how the Corinthians thought that Taking communion was a sort of magic that entitled them to live however they wanted. Paul addresses this sort of thinking. Again, he uses their own logic about communion's importance to make his point while not embracing their thinking. He says, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. He then goes on to make his argument. Paul is like a Supreme Court judge quoting from another justice to make a point they know will not be well received by the person they have quoted. This is a classic strategy in rhetoric, which Paul was well versed in. Rhetoric was considered the, the supreme art and science of the ancient Roman world. It doesn't make sense that the Corinthians, who hold the bread and the cup in such high esteem, would then join that which they esteem with the worship of idols. They're mixing that which they hold sacred which that with, with that which they should despise. Paul drives his point home through rhetorical questions. For Paul, the conclusions the Corinthians should draw are obvious. Taking communion one day and Taking part in idol worship the next is a ridiculous thing to do. We don't think about communion in the same way the Corinthians did. In a sermon a few weeks from now, we'll spend some time on what the Bible does say about communion. While our thinking on communion is different, the logic Paul applies to the Corinthians in these verses applies to us as well. As Christians, we recognize that the price of our sins has been paid by the blood of Christ. Through his atonement for us, we are connected with him. 
In the same way, the Corinthians couldn't partake in communion, but at the same time they relished participation in sinful idolatry, we cannot enjoy grace as we embrace sin. Too often, the present Christian culture exhibits the spiritual awareness of a top 40 country song. Loving Jesus and getting drunk are referenced in the same song as if there is no contradiction between the two. There is a contradiction between Jesus and sin, and it is absolute. We cannot participate in both at the same time. Paul paints this contrast as starkly as possible. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. I don't particularly like the language Paul uses here. I don't like talking about demons or even thinking about them for that matter. It makes me uncomfortable. Part of my discomfort is I don't want to sound like a crank. The fact is that there are dark spiritual forces at work in the world just as there are forces for good. The idolatry and sin of the Corinthians puts them in direct contact with these forces. Our sin does the same. Nobody should be flippant about what they are doing when they sin. Sin is a rejection of grace. It is a rejection of Jesus Christ. It may seem harmless enough, it is not. This is a message Jesus himself shared in regards to worshiping money, which is one common form of idolatry. He said, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There's a dichotomy between the two. Those who consistently choose sin are indicating that whatever they might say, Jesus has no real space in their life. Now, hear me out. We all have struggles. We all have sin. We all mess up. Addiction is a real thing. We are fallen creatures trying to move forward in grace. What is disconcerting is when a person who claims to be a Christian lives a life of sin without any struggle. This should rightly cause anyone who cares about that person to wonder they are actually a believer. They may be. That's not for me or for anyone else to judge. But remorseless sin is the best indicator that a person is not a sincere Christian. Whatever they may claim. Paul asks, shall we provoke the Lord's jealousy? Jealousy is an emotional state many people don't want associated with God. 
Oprah is a famous example of this discomfort. She claims God's jealousy is one of the factors that caused her to reevaluate what she believed. In an interview with the magazine that bears her name, Oprah said, quote, the church I went to had a really charismatic pastor. You had to show up early to get a seat. And I remember sitting there one Sunday while he was preaching about how the Lord thy God is a jealous God, the Lord thy God will punish you for your sins. I looked around and thought, why would God be jealous? What does that even mean? I think many people would share Oprah's questions about God being jealous. When a person is jealous, it's a character flaw. Not only that, but when I hear a person is jealous, I, I just assume they're a deeply insecure person. What does it mean that God is jealous? First, we must recognize that God's jealousy is not like human jealousy. God's jealousy aligned with his overall character. When Paul warns the Corinthians about making the Lord jealous, he is not pointing to a character flaw. The Corinthians need to be aware. Unlike human jealousy, which is a personal failing, people, the jealousy of the Lord is an outworking of his perfection. Kirk Willem, writing for the Gospel Coalition, defines divine jealousy as God's holy commitment to his honor, glory, and love that manifests itself in the salvation of his people and the just condemnation of all who stand in opposition to him. Ultimately, God has every right to be jealous. When a person is jealous, they're trying to say, you belong to me. No person has any basis for making that claim in a complete way. Although it is valid for you know, a husband to be jealous for his wife if she's having an affair, or vice versa. Normally when we say a person is jealous, what we mean is that the level of ownership one person wants to have over another is disproportionate to the type of relationship they have. God is jealous because in our relationship with him, he can expect total ownership of us. We need to be cognizant of the Lord's strength in addition to his jealousy. The gentleness of God should not be confused with weakness. A few weeks ago, I saw a video online of a lion cub playing with, his, with her father's you know, little, little baby lion. And she's jumping all around, she's chewing on his ears, and she's biting his tail. And every once in a while, that father lion kind of gently, gently pawed the cub away, playing with her a little bit. Not only could the adult lion easily destroy the cub, he has to actively hold back his strength. If he didn't actively limit his strength, the cub would suffer serious harm. 
in the video, the cops seemed to understand this was the case because at one point she bit her father's lip a little bit too hard. Anybody that's been a parent has been in a circumstance where your kid actually does something that hurts you. And the, the lion, he gives a snarl and that cub just took off, right? The obvious answer to Paul's final question from today's verses is that we are not stronger than God. God's gentleness with us is not weakness. It is strength that he has restrained so that we will not be destroyed. Christians need to be careful that we don't abuse God's restraint. Sin provokes God to not withhold his strength. Flippantly sinning is about as good an idea as punching a lion in the face. Nobody should expect a good outcome from actions that don't take into account the strength of God and that he is jealous for us. Sin is no laughing matter when we worship other things in place of God and makes them jealous. There are many things we can idolize in place of God. Many of these things are not inherently bad, but if we worship them in place of God, we are sinning. God is patient with us in our weakness. But we should not abuse that patience. For our own well-being, we should take it seriously. If we understand our association with Jesus Christ through the blood he shed for us, we will want to avoid sin. An awareness of the Lord's strength will make us want to avoid sin. There are plenty of reasons to take sin seriously. Fundamentally, sin divides us from Jesus Christ. It is destructive. We should take sin as seriously as the Lord takes it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, this is a, this is a somber sermon. It's a serious sermon to deliver today. And I pray that we would take heed. I pray that we would be warned as Christians knowing that we have a Father that loves us, knowing that through the blood of Jesus Christ, we can, we can stand in the presence of the Lord. And, and that's amazing. The Holy Spirit resides in us. But it, instead of any of those things making us think that sin is not a big deal, each of those things should make us think that sin is an even bigger deal. It should increase our awareness of sin. We thank you that, that you are merciful to us, that your desire is to forgive us, to make us whole, and to give us life. I pray that each of us in this room would flee from sin as it arises in our life. That we would reject sin. I ask that not just so that we can be perceived in a certain way, but for our own good and also for the good of this community. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.